You're listening to the Between You and Me podcast, brought to you by JesusWire.com, with your host, Jessica Morris. Hello, my friends. Welcome to a new episode of Between You and Me, the podcast where we talk about the things that hurt, heal and change us in the music industry and in the church. My name is Jessica Morris and we have an extra special episode for you today. And I'm not just saying that because we actually have a double episode for you. That's right. I'm about to drop one for you today and then next week we have part two and that is because I'm speaking to the very talented Dan Coke. Now fans of alternative punk music from the noughties will be familiar with Dan. He was a member of the band Sherwood who were pretty successful. They toured internationally, they were on Warp Tour, they supported bands like Reliant K. These guys were like right in the middle of like the MySpace age and you can't argue with that considering at one point they were actually signed to MySpace Records. We have Dan on today and he now actually runs a podcast called You Have Permission. Now, his podcast is all about talking about stuff we love. It's about deconstructing religion and faith and asking really tough questions. And he recently started doing a series on end times anxiety. What does this have to do with us? Well, nearly any millennial or young adult who grew up in conservative or evangelical culture will be familiar with end times largely due to how prevalent it was in the media during the 90s and the noughties. I'm talking about the whole Left Behind saga, the massive trilogy of books, the movies that our dear friend Kurt Cameron started, like all of those things. There was this whole theory, conspiracy theory, fear, interest about the end of the world. Now, for you guys who never experienced that, Basically, this end times theology comes from the end of the Bible. The last book of the Bible is called Revelation. And in it, there are all these prophecies about the end of the world and Jesus coming back. It gets complicated. There have been a billion interpretations. But all you need to know is that in Christian popular culture, it became a really cool thing to talk about and to guess. It's like the end of the world's going to happen this year. Or this year, or this is the Antichrist. A lot of you guys, like me, would have grown up with that and had a really bizarre experience with it. Dan Koch is on today for episode one to talk about end times anxiety because, like so many of us, he grew up in the evangelical church and he knows what it means to deconstruct everything that you believe in and rebuild it to try and figure out what you actually believe. He has used his podcast to actually ask people about this question. How did end times anxiety affect you, your mental health and your faith? He has used this to partner with his degree in psychology and it's all part of his thesis. So this is like, this guy is more than qualified to talk about these things. And I'm just really excited today that we get to dive into something that has affected so many of us in a really subliminal way. Never Fear Sherwood fans, part two next Friday will feature an entire conversation about his career. We're going to talk about 
how his faith started, what, what made it like deconstruct, why Sherwood split up, Pacific Gold, why he started doing podcasting and theology and mental health and all sorts of stuff. So we have a lot to talk about, which is why I've split into two sections. If you are interested in all facets of evangelical culture, you will love both these episodes. But if you are wanting to hear all about Dan and his music, I promise you episode two is for you. You will love it. And even if you're not familiar with end times theology and the whole conspiracy stuff that happens with it, Dan's take on this stuff is really clever. He is such an analytical thinker. He knows this so well. And because of that, I think you'll just find this a really interesting episode. Now, beyond that, this episode is probably a little bit heavier than some of the ones we normally do. Dan's talking about mental health and some of the people he interviewed. He also talks a little bit about his own experience spiritually and things like that. On top of that, I actually talked to him a little bit as well about my own experience with anxiety and we sort of swap notes on where we were at with end times anxiety. We talk about topics like hell, we talk about mental illness and we do very quickly mention suicide. Now Dan is becoming a professional in this area and I do have some training so we've tried really carefully to make sure that we talk in terms that are quite healthy um, but just be aware that if this is something that triggers you or that you sort of your antenna go up we will be talking about it at one point you are more than welcome to hit that fast forward button if you would like to uh, we will also be sharing some find help lines at the end of this episode but apart from that I think that you guys will find this really valuable and fascinating my friends please meet Dan Coke. There are well-rounded human beings. And then there is Dan Koch. Music, theology, family, even Screamo children's covers. Since he co-founded the band Sherwood in 2002, it's clear he has turned his hand to everything and he does it really well. But let's start at the beginning, shall we? Because any frequenter of AbsolutePunk.net will be horrified if I don't introduce Dan Koch as the principal songwriter and second guitarist of Sherwood the super successful indie rock band from California. Developing their name from the Robin Hood cartoon, they went on to release two EPs and three albums before breaking up in 2012. In the decade they were around, they created a Beach Boys-esque influence sound and they were signed to Side Echo Records and later MySpace Records. Yes, that MySpace. They actually had dinner with Tom. Now Sherwood toured on Van's Warp Tour and spent time on the road supporting Reliant K, May, Motion City Soundtrack and The Academy Is. Oh, and they spent time touring England with Hello Goodbye and Say Anything. No big deal, right? Now Sherwood reformed in 2015 and crowdfunded a return album, Some Things Never Leave You. They also had a reunion tour that year. But that's not the end of Dan Koch's story and that's not the only thing we're talking about. Because during his time with Sherwood and after their breakup in 2012, he pursued solo or collaborative projects. In 2005, he had joined Sherwood's then guitarist Chris Armstrong to create an EP of Screamo Children's Colours of Children's Melodies. They went under the name I'll Beat You Up and the EP was released for free on MySpace. Then there was his time in San Diego band We Shot the Moon and his stint on the Sherwood show when Sherwood the band released new videos to their MySpace page and lived out the dreams of every MySpace obsessed teenager like myself. 
Dan continued in his pursuit of solo or collaborative projects when Sherwood broke up and he formed Pacific Gold, formerly known as Wayfarer, a Christian rock band that modernised hymns. They released three independent EPs and their final album, Sing My Welcome Home, was released under the Bad Christian label, a partnership Dan personally kept with the Bad Christian community as he is still a guest on the podcast to this day. After Dan stepped away from working with the bands to focus on his family, he did keep music as a passion project and as a placement in numerous ads and commercials. He also pursued podcasting and created a successful Repolarized podcast following the division in the Evangelical Church after the 2016 presidential election. Reconstruct followed, where he and co-host John Raines to deconstruct preconceived worldviews and help individuals to rebuild their own belief systems, something Dan had experienced in growing up in the evangelical church himself. This paved the way for Dan's current uber-successful podcast, You Have Permission To, which tackles questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. He has partnered this with his doctoral studies and recently conducted research into the effect of end times anxiety on people who grew up in the evangelical culture. And to top it off, Dan is just about to become a father. In this first episode of our two-part series featuring Dan Coke, we unwrap attributes of evangelical culture, discussing how our perception of the end times and its resurgence in Christian media during the 90s and thousands impacted the mental health and faith of a generation, and why this matters today. Next Friday, we will chat to Dan about his own deconstruction of faith, his rise to fame with Sherwood, and what it means to lose your identity when the band you found in breaks up. Hit subscribe so you get next week's episode, and settle in, my friends. This is the start of a fascinating journey with our new friends. Dan Coke. For people who have never met you before, who is Dan Coke? And did I say your name right? Yes, you did. Nice work. Yes. Thank you. Uh, sometimes checkers at the grocery store will, you know, be told they're supposed to say it a certain way. And, and what they come up with is uh, not safe for podcast <laughs> language. It's Coke. <laughs> it is Coke. Um, nice. Yeah, well, I mean, so it depends on what we're talking about. In the music world, I was the songwriter and guitar player for a band called Sherwood for a number of years. And then I uh, had a group called Pacific Gold um, after that uh, here in Seattle, Washington in the U.S. Um, And then in the uh, sort of more theological world, I'm the host of the You Have Permission podcast. And before that, I did the Depolarize podcast and also Reconstruct and I'm a regular guest on the Bad Christian podcast. Um, those are friends of mine. And I'm a guy who likes, uh, I like theology and psychology, and I'm studying to become a psychologist right now, but I'm a very long way away from that. I'm almost five years away from that being completed. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of who I am at a broad stroke. That's a very well-rounded broad stroke. Nice work. That's really cool. I love that you're also starting to become a psychologist or in psychology. What yeah. what stream would you go into there? Uh, I will be a therapist, so I'll have some clients in a private practice, but I also hope to do some writing and speaking and consulting and, and possibly even do like evaluations, uh, of like psychological evaluations and stuff like that. And then in That's terms of academic so work. Cool. Tough I, work, but really cool. Yeah, no, and and then uh, in terms of like uh, combining that with faith, I would like to do work around the intersection of psychology and theology and and lived practical Christianity as well. Oh, I want to read all your future work because that sounds fascinating. I love that. So good. Um, So this is who 
Dan is now. You've achieved so much and you describe yourself, while I was listening to your podcast, as a progressive Christian on a political scale, all that sort of stuff. But who was God to you when you were growing up and how did you get to this point? Yeah, great question. Uh, I was raised non-denominational evangelical in California. So um, are you from the States or you're obviously not from the States, you're from no, Australia. No, I'm, fr- I'm from Australia. I live in Australia at the moment, but I sort of okay. go between here and Nashville. Okay, okay. So you have a sense of, uh, so Nashville is a good example. So the South <laughs> yes. is very different in the States than the West Coast, for instance. And so I was raised evangelical, but I was not raised fundamentalist, if those words have different meanings for you or your listeners. so Yes, no, I hear that. Yeah. So like, you know, I read Left Behind and I watched McGee and Me and I went to my friend's Awana class and I, you know, I, I had, I handed out four spiritual laws tracts to people to try and get them to accept Christ. Um, But I also watched movies, you know, I, I had dances at my Christian high school. Uh, So it was a, it was like a chill version of what a lot of people got if they grew up in the Midwest or the South. Yeah, no, I hear that. And I relate to that a lot because I feel like I, if there's like a Bible belt in Australia, I think I probably grew up in it, but it was a little bit more chill than American evangelical culture. But I still had like McGee and me and I still had Left Behind and I still started the Christian club at my school, which made me so popular. So I totally get it. (laughs) Yeah, that, that alone is really interesting. Like the, the sort of cultural Christianity differences between uh, countries Uh, And in this case, between hemispheres. Um, But yeah, so I guess who God was to me when I was a kid is a, that is like a great question I have not actually thought about very much. So I tend to, I I had a pretty cerebral faith when I was like, really until the last five or six years, I would say it was primarily about arguments and, and philosophy and theology. Uh, But as a kid, you can't really do that, right? So As a kid, I mean, mostly I think I experienced God through my overactive conscience. I was an anxious kid and I got guilty very easily. So I was very aware of what rules I might be breaking at any given moment. And I had really a very active conscience, um, probably overactive, I would say now. Uh, And so I was I was a good kid for the most part. I didn't get into a lot of trouble. And I think that, I don't know, God was just like a part of the fabric. Like I was raised in a Christian home and I, I assumed that God was good. I, I knew that I was saved. Uh, and I didn't, I never really worried about not being saved, even though I did deal with anxiety around a lot of things, including, you know, the end times and which I, I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Yeah. I understand that a lot. I, I, I really relate to the growing up just in that environment and God is just sort of like part of it. It's just like, yep, that's what we do. And we go to church and we believe yeah. this and this is how we talk. I totally get that. So when was this perception or when I say comfortable, obviously there was anxiety, which I completely understand and relate to, but when did this start to break open and you sort of, you started to like nearly deconstruct who you thought God was and put it back together? Yeah, that's a good question. So the the anxiety around the end times was actually pretty unrelated to what I, most of my deconstruction and reconstruction of my faith. So the anxiety started in sixth grade. 
Uh, I had already had panic attacks about other stuff, but the first religious panic attack I had or Christianity-based panic attack I had was in sixth grade when someone gave me a book in 1996 called 96 Reasons Christ Will Return in 1996. Oh, no. Yeah. It said he would come back in September, and this was like April or so. Uh, In sixth grade, yeah, I'm 12 years old, and... I freaked out. I mean, I had, I think I had mild panic attacks every night for a month or so um, until my system just sort of shut down and I had to stop thinking about it to survive. Um, You know, you can get like adrenaline fatigue at some point. Um, So that was what started all of that. But, and that, that continued as like a topic of like what we call a trigger, a panic attack trigger until my twenties actually. Um, and then deconstruction uh, and f- of faith and stuff is kind of a whole other stream. If you're right, I'll find every piece will fit together just the way that you remember. And I'll try, yeah, I'll try to see it from another angle. Find the picture on the table, and you are. anxiety stuff and end times anxiety Uh, just because I'm really keen to jump into that because I know that you've done a series of episodes in your podcast about it and we'll definitely get into the construction of faith and stuff but can you tell me what prompted you to actually start recording episodes about it because my understanding is that you're actually doing study into end times anxiety and eschatology and people's perceptions to that Yeah, so it's part, it's like early research toward my dissertation, which I don't have to finish for five years, (laughs) but I'm working on it and I'm kind of whittling down what I want it to be about, but also I'm planning on writing this stuff into a popular level book, um, sharing these stories, basically a vehicle to get these stories out there so that people feel less alone if they grew up with this stuff. So I guess... Yeah, and I mean, the short answer of why I wanted to do this is it's actually pretty common for people who do master's or doctorate programs uh, to have their first research be what is affectionately called me-search. So you try and figure out something kind of about yourself, and that also applies to other people. And this is my story, as I've been telling you. Uh, and it, and um, I think that, so other than it being my story, though, uh, which obviously gives it a bunch of meaning... I think that in particular, the end times prediction stuff feels like a particularly egregious example of like spiritual authority misplaced. Um, Not necessarily in the way of like, it's more abusive than other, it's like more potentially abusive than other situations. It's more just like, like everybody has thought Jesus was coming back for 2000 years and they've all been wrong. And so if it does a bunch of damage, it's just like kind of needless damage. So I think that's that kind of lifts it up in terms of importance. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. So when you were starting to go about this research and started to interview people, what were the common like denominators in concerns that people expressed or how it even impacted them growing up? Yeah, so the first thing that's important is like, 
it is a certain kind of person who uh, replied. So I asked for a specific <laughs> kind of person. This is not a representative sample of millennial Americans or anything like that. I asked for people who were raised with end times teaching and had had mental health symptoms in relation to that. So that's the that's who said yes, basically. And um, so it's more like a case study than yeah, it cool. is, uh, you know, a survey or something like that. So basically, uh, but then there was a pretty wide gamut. So there were people who have current, uh, you know, diagnoses like OCD or panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder. Um, and then there are people who have never had those diagnoses and, and, and even though they might still have stuff today. Uh, and so one of the interesting things there was like how approving of mental health help was their community. And there was a big variation among people I talked to. Um, and in terms of, in terms of commonalities, I mean, everybody, I think, I think every single person had stories of feeling like they had been left behind which I think that everybody raised evangelical has at least one of those memories. Um, but for these people, those were generally quite a bit more impactful and traumatizing for them. Well, what can you tell me what role popular culture as in evangelical popular culture had on this anxiety? Because I know for me, I read the left behind books and it took me a long, long time to realize that left behind books weren't revelation <laughs> so yeah. I, I just realized there was like the bible yeah 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 so what role did that weird evangelical popular culture play in i suppose provoking that that anxiety or the mental health responses that people had to end times yeah that's a really that's a great question so i'm actually doing i'm working now on a follow-up series where i'm trying to answer the question why was this so popular in the first place and so I'm interviewing like a bunch of baby boomers, like my parents' generation, and trying to get it to the bottom of that. But something that I've already found that's interesting is in certain strains of Christianity, this is just assumed. This eschatology is just assumed. It is just part of the bread and butter of the whole thing. And one thing that I think I'm finding is that in the 70s, when the Jesus movement blows up in America, and I don't know, maybe in Australia too, for all I know, um, sort of like that post-hippie, uh, baby boomer Christianity evangelicalism, that comes out of an understanding of Christianity that just already includes the end times. And so I think the same thing happens when my generation is being raised up and the Left Behind series hits and it blows up and it's massive I think when something gets to be that level of popularity within a subculture, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to people in the moment to question it because it just seems very plausible because everybody you know finds it plausible. And so you find it plausible. Uh, and really, it, it, it's almost like something else has to happen in order to question it. The default is we're not going to question it. And I think that's, by the way, normal human psychology, group psychology, there's nothing right or wrong about that. That's just how groups work. To see the law by Christ fulfilled to hear His pardoning voice can change a slave into a child And duty into choice No strength of nature can suffice to serve 
the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. So when you came to people and asked them these questions, what sort of, what sort of impacted this, this anxiety about the end times actually have on their perception of God and their religious faith? Like do, do people come out of this still believing in God? Do they, do they throw it away? Do they deconstruct it completely? Like how does that work for people? Because I'm, for me I know that anxiety and God don't really go together. I, the anxiety about God is there, but like that's not part of his character in my belief. So how does how do people hold that and what effect does it have on their lives? Well, that's a really interesting thing that you just said. If I might start by asking you a question before I answer yours. Yeah, what, go for it. How do you experience that, that kind of bifurcation? I experience it as well, by the way, that in my mind, uh, God cannot be the kind of being that causes me to be running on my limbic system, my fight or flight system, and making me afraid of him. That can't be what the God of love is really like. Uh, but it's very hard to extinguish anxious thoughts, especially if, like me, you are an anxious person. I, I actually am curious a little bit more about how you have that dialogue in your own head and in your own experience. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think I have an anxiety disorder. And that comes out in sort of more OCD, particularly in my thoughts. Um, so when I was growing up, particularly as a teenager, that would come out particularly, it was like very much around religious fundamentalism. And so I grew up as a really uh, sheltered kid who was very much like, this is right and this is wrong. And this is of God and this isn't. And there was no nuance. So when I, I was afraid of things that I didn't think were of God, and that included any doubts, any fears, any feelings, like anything that, and then like the more bigger issues and the more, the more bigger nuances like sexuality and things like that. And I didn't know how to process it. So with my OCD, the fear of that would come up and I would play it over and over in my head and try and figure out how that fitted with the Bible and with the God that I knew and I would play it over and over and over and over and I'd never win. I'd never find an answer because OCD doesn't let you find an answer. It literally just keeps mm. going. So I came to the conclusion in the end for me that God is a God of love and that anxiety has to be separate from him purely because I think when I was, when I've been struggling the most in my life and when I was, I had a really, I think 13 or 14, I was really depressed and I was suicidal the only thing that saved me in that point was the fact that I believe God had something better for me. And so I was like, well, if he has something better for me, then he can't want me to feel this. He must be a God of love. So there has to be a division there somehow for me. Um, and it doesn't always go with how I read the, like the Old Testament, but I sort of, I feel like the God that I know, I'm continually trying to reconcile, okay, this is the God of love and this is what the scripture says or what people say. How does that come together? It doesn't always come together for me, but I know that if I'm alive, God has to be God of love because there's no other reason for me to be here. Does that make sense? Yeah. That, thank you for sharing that. That's intense. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, hey, I'm training to become a therapist. It's just, I don't know. 
you know, this is your public platform and I want to be careful with what you want oh, to no, share. It's, it's, this is pretty, people are used to that. It's all good. Thank okay. you though. All I right. appreciate it. My listeners as well. So, um, well, so it's interesting you brought up suicidality. So one of the people I interviewed actually had the opposite experience of you when he was a teenager, he was suicidal. And the only thing that kept him from committing suicide was fear of going to hell. Wow. Yes, yeah. I get so that. Can it can go yeah. both ways, interestingly. Yeah. And, and see, the weird thing for me is that I never, I never thought that I would go to hell. Yeah, as, as, yeah, which is, which is odd in that, in a sense. So, well, it's so not so odd. Actually, I've got an episode coming about this soon. Uh, it's, it's not out yet. It's in the next month or two about these guys who created um, a psychological measure called the hell anxiety scale. And one of the things that they talk about with hell is that it's actually almost impossible for someone to believe in hell and believe that they're going there. Like our mind can't really hold that tension for very long. So with, with the, with the guy I talked to and interviewed, you know, he obviously didn't stay in the, like it kept him from killing himself at least once or something, but that's not a long-term strategy, right? Like he had to obviously come, to something a bit more sustainable than fear of hell to, to stay alive. And he did. Um, but there, there is, it's not weird that you don't think you're going to hell because almost nobody can think that they're going to hell. Wow. I appreciate that. Cause I've never, I've never literally never talked about it, which is probably why this is such a big deal in Christian culture that we never talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but so to answer your original question, um, oh, shoot, what was it? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think, Tom, like, did I write this down or did I just ask it on a whim? No, um, something about uh, what what we found. Oh, man. what? Oh, oh their uh, image of God. Their image of God. That's yes. Thank you. Yes. Yep. Go for yeah. it. So I did ask that. I asked people, I asked everybody, how, what kind of a God did this basically paint for them? And I got a, a, a nice variety of answers, actually. So for some people, the end time stuff had no effect on their image of God. They were able to sort of exempt God morally from this by saying, well, God's got something to do with Satan. He's got unfinished business with Satan. Uh, God still loves us, but we are just sort of unfortunate collateral damage for a battle that he has to have against Satan. Other people had the opposite. They said, this was a vengeful God. This is a God who is just ruthlessly sort of, um, I don't know, creating and officiating rules for how I can live every minute of my life, uh, a sadistic God. Um, and then the other thing you asked was if people left the faith or whatever. And, and I would say for more people than not that I talked to, this wasn't a real impediment to continuing their faith. Now, a lot of them are in healthier places now. They have, they have deconstructed and, and are reconstructing or have reconstructed their faith to be a God that they can actually live with in their bodies as they deal with anxiety, OCD, depression, whatever. And then other people I talk to do not consider themselves Christians anymore. And for them, it was, it, it seemed, I have other reasons too, I'm sure, but it was unhealthy for them, uh, and I, I, if I could speak for them, I would say it's too associated with all this pain that they've experienced, and especially 
those who didn't feel comfortable getting therapeutic help, for instance, or getting pharmaceutical help, uh, they just really associate that with, uh, with their experience. And I understand that. I, I myself have faith despite all this stuff, but I sort of get where they're coming from. order now with some freebies. It's called Writing Worship, How to Craft Heartfelt Songs for the Church. You may have noticed lots of churches are beginning to sing their own songs, and while this seems like a new thing, it's actually a very old thing, and I believe it's beautiful because the church is getting her voice back. So if you've ever been interested in songwriting or you'd like to write for your church, check it out. We talk a lot about the heart behind a songwriter writing for worship. We talk about the skills it takes to get it done. We talk about the community that you need to have around you and the importance of co-writing. And then we also talk a lot about the purpose behind why we do what we do. So go check it out, Writing Worship. Do you create wedding videos, podcasts, ads, content, maybe even one of those slideshows while you're trying to move your church into the 21st century? Well, Soundstripe is the answer to all your problems. The ultimate music stock site made for video producers, they offer a great variety of high-quality royalty-free songs and have an unlimited licensing model. This is literally one of a kind in the industry. And that is because it was created by musicians. With a monthly or yearly fee, you have unlimited access to world-class music. We are talking composers like Aaron Sprinkle and Matt Winton. Every time you license a song through Soundstripe, the royalty goes straight back to the musician. With curator playlist, new music every week, and more than 30,000 special effects, this is the ultimate source of music for creatives. Trust me, I've been using this since day one with Between You and Me, and I can tell you that any background music you are hearing comes directly from Soundstripe. They are absolutely incredible. When you sign up for Soundstripe today, you can get 10% off using the code UMEPOD. That is soundstripe.com with the code UMEPOD. And now back to the show. There's nearly like an anxiety and an apprehension and uncertainty about end times. And could this be it? Is this guy the Antichrist? Because it has to be a dude or something. And right. and is this it? And and what am I going to do? I remember thinking as a kid, do I need to store my Bibles underground like they did in the Left Behind series? And right. to this day, I will literally occasionally have thoughts of being like, oh, my gosh. Okay, so if we get taken up in the clouds, if I pray to God, will he take my pets with me? And it feels like the stupidest thing ever to think, but I just flash back to reading all these books, the behind books predominantly, and thinking, 
oh my gosh, I can't, I can't let my friends or the, my, my pets or anyone go through that. And so there's this anxiety like, oh my gosh, like there's so much pressure on me, but I can't control it. So has that, do you think, affected wider evangelical culture? Knowing that at the moment in America, it's really predominant on a political scale, but is that those characteristics of nearly that, the anxiety and that pressure and we have to save everybody, but also we're under attack. Do you think that are there characteristics of current evangelical culture or am I just misreading this? Cause that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So one thing I don't know, uh, is what percentage of, for instance, nine-year-olds being raised today in Christianity or in, in evangelicalism are still being raised with this kind of teaching. I do know that certain denominations, certain leaders are still very into this stuff. Those leaders tend to be boomers or older. So one thing that uh, I think is pretty clear is that my generation has sort of ended that cycle. Uh, we just don't, we don't really, most of us do not buy this stuff. We saw too many of those predictions not come true. And we have Wikipedia now. You know, we have sort of like, we can look up all the failed doomsday prophecies of the last 2000 years in an instant. And I do think that the, the coming of the information age and the kind of robustness that we experience it now, where it's like truly revolutionary amounts of information immediately accessible, not just at the library, you know, with the Dewey Decimal System that you have to figure out. And like, it's really just right there, has sort of immunized, if you will, has vaccinated younger generations against this stuff, unless for some other psychological reason, they're really drawn to it, basically. Gotcha. Sure. So like, if you're a, if you're a natural conspiracy theorist, you're probably still doing the end time stuff. And uh, if you're like 30, and otherwise, you, you probably just think it's, it's crap. <laughs> yes. In terms of not yeah, necessarily, you know, in terms of the actual predicting and trying to follow the current event, that's what I mean, like getting into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. No, I get that. Uh, I think, yeah, I, I guess it gets to a point as well, I think, when I'm not a conspiracy theorist. So for me, most of the time, I believe in, like, I'm like, sure, Jesus will come back. He says that. But apart from that, I just sort of put it to the side because I'm like, well, I can't control it. And that sounds terrifying. So I just set it aside nearly. Um, and so the fact that a lot of us have done that, either dismissing it completely or just sort of, like, compartmentalizing it, I feel like it's healthy and more about survival than anything else. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's kind of a uh, there's sort of like a neurological reality that, that I think corresponds with that, which is when you are in flight, fright or fight, flight or freeze mode, basically this thing that is in our brains where we run from the bear or we fight, you know, the dog or the enemy running at us or we play dead with the giant animal coming by us, the saber-toothed tiger or whatever. When you're in that part of your brain, you can't really do much else. You can't, uh, you can't use your prefrontal cortex to like think about the future and consider your place in the world and your aims and whatever. You're just like surviving. And what a lot of this stuff does, I think at a differential level for different people with different brains, but on the broad scope, what it does is it puts people in that fight or flight or freeze mode. And you can just only stay there so long. 
and it only gives you short-term benefits. It doesn't really work long-term as a motivator. You're not, you're not moving towards something beautiful, right? You're just avoiding something scary. And especially once you recognize that like, oh, Jesus didn't really seem to care about predicting the end. Jesus said he didn't even know when it was happening. Uh, I guess we could just like chill on this. Once you have that out, that kind of psychological out that you can give yourself, I think you just you just need to like pause it. You have to pause things on the constant adrenaline, uh, which just wears you out and doesn't is not about long term goals, life trajectory, stuff like that. played in this and I know that you mentioned that this anxiety didn't sort of uh I don't want to use the word affect your faith because it's all part of it but um you mentioned how the deconstruction and reconstruction of your faith was really separate um to your to times anxiety for you but can you take me through that and tell me how hearing these stories now has actually affected you or, or reminded you of the past and things like that if at all yeah, I'll give you a kind of a broad stroke and then you can decide where you want to zoom in on. So for me, the the main topics around my own deconstruction and reconstruction, which for me really started uh, 18, 19 years ago when I was in high school, um, I started, I, I really identified with punk rock and caring about the poor. Uh, and I associated that with Jesus immediately. And that was kind of the beginning of my adult faith. Um, but then right after that, I started reading the Old Testament Canaanite conquest narratives and uh, began deconstructing that. So 1819, I'm like, oh, I don't think I could believe that God actually ever wanted this. This is disgusting and rape and all kinds of grossness. And so that and then uh, salvation, hell, universalism, um, like what kind of God would, would torture anybody forever, uh, that kind of stuff. And then that eventually led to, um, I, I wanted to look into the question of homosexuality and the question of, um, I guess it was uh, evolution. And a friend was like, well, I think that actually those are kind of textual questions. So that led to looking at inerrancy and uh, what I think about biblical inspiration and all that stuff. So that was sort of the main thrust of my deconstruction. Then I started reconstructing after taking up contemplative practice and switching from more of a cerebral 
relationship to God to more of an experiential relationship with God, a moment-to-moment kind of prayer-based experience uh, of relationship. And then the where this end time stuff falls in is actually I've, I've just been kind of relitigating it because of this series, right? And what it has done, I would say it is contributing to further deconstruction of what I was given, um, especially around biblical stuff. And I'll just, I'll try and make this quick, but basically if you think about any Bible prophecy as having mathematical qualities to it, right? So for instance, a seven year tribulation, and after this many times, this thing will happen. And after one generation from Israel's founding or whatever, if you think that any of that stuff is real, then that basically presupposes a certain understanding of the inspiration of the Bible where God gave exact phrases because it's math. It's not going to be wrong math. So exact numbers to the biblical authors. So really it assumes a kind of what you might call a verbal inspiration uh, model of, of the Bible, which is, I would actually say is not historically Orthodox Christianity. That's Mormonism and that's Islam about the Book of Mormon and the Quran. Those are verbally word for word inspired texts. And the Bible's not that, and it never has been that in the, the broad stream of Christian thinking. So it has actually recontributed to that. And there's probably more I could say about, and we've been getting into it a little bit, like what's the psychology of all of this? Like, why were we so gullible? What's actually going on here? Are we trying to just avoid hell? Are we trying to just avoid discomfort? And is it escapist and all that? So. But it, this has all happened after most of my reconstruction, deconstruction and reconstruction had already happened. If you were to define your faith now, who is God to you currently? Okay, I actually pulled this up because apparently I gave an answer to this a little rambly, but one of the listeners of the show who's also a patron um, and so is in the Facebook group wrote it down and kind of took out all the silences and ums and stuff. And uh, so this is what I apparently said, and I love it, and I'm sticking by it. So I'm going to now read back her <laughs> her transcript of what I said in the moment. Okay. God is the entity, mind, agent, or whatever that was capable of bringing the universe into existence and is present to every creature at every moment, luring us towards rightness, goodness, love, beauty, and justice. God is pervading and sustaining the universe at every moment. Everything in the universe is within God, but God is also more than the universe. And God is interacting with people of other faiths on a regular basis as well. That's my definition of God for for 2020, I guess. That's, and I love that definition and the whatever captures it so perfectly because it's like yeah. God's bigger than all this, but this isn't my attempt to try and nail it down. Sure. It's so good. By <laughs> definition, God has to be bigger than language. And that, what? you know, so that's a really, I think there's a lot there that gets sort of glossed over, but language is really quite insufficient. Um, and I think it's, if you are really committed to a kind of perfect uh, inspiration of the text, then you're going to have a reason to doubt that language is insufficient. But if you just think about, like I watched, uh, my wife and I watched The Good Place, the NBC show. So good, yes. So good. And and I was just sitting there after the finale for like 90 minutes with her. And I was like, don't turn anything else on. I'm processing this. I don't have language 
for what I'm feeling. And that was a kind of a transcendent experience of, of that show and what it did to me. And then I recorded a 90 minute podcast about it with two friends. And I still feel like I've only captured 15% of what happened there in words. And that's how language is. It's just not, it's just like kind of a blunt tool for what we actually experience. And so if that's true, then of course our language about God is going to be that way. Unless you think that supernaturally God not only gives us perfect language, but also supersedes the limits of language in our own minds so that we can supersede them to know information about God. And I understand that some people do believe that about God, but I don't find that very plausible anymore. was all of that there was so much to it and dan has four full episodes on his podcast all about the end times anxiety as well as a bunch of other fascinating topics so make sure you check it out and we'll include the link in the show notes for you as well so you can go and follow that up if you would like to follow dan online and let him know that you'd love what he had to say today you can definitely go and do that you can find dan online at dan coke that is d-a-n-c-o-k-e and at dancokewrites.com. That's online, D-A-N-K-O-C-H, writes.com. And if you liked any of the music on today's show, that actually comes from his previous work with Sherwood and with Pacific Gold. So we've included some links in the show notes as well, so you can pick up some of that music if you like it. I know that today's show was quite heavy and we talked about some really significant things. I shared my story, Dan shared a bit of his, and we talked about some really difficult topics um, that I think a lot of you guys probably resonated with but they're not always easy to hear. Uh, so if today made you feel uneasy um, or you have questions or anything like that I would love you to reach out and to ask for some help. Um, speak to a friend or family member or someone that you really trust to get you and just let them know how you're feeling. There's also the option of calling a uh, lifeline service who are essentially just there to hear you and to let you know that it's okay to feel the things you're feeling if you are in australia i would love you to call lifeline on 13 11 14 if you are in america you can call the national suicide prevention lifeline on 1-800-273-8255 look you don't have to be in a crisis to call these numbers to ask for help you just need to feel a little bit off and to know it's okay to ask for help guys there is always room for that and you deserve to be heard. If you would like any other international numbers or resources, you can go visit our friends at To Write Love and Her Arms. 
They are at twloha.com. I'll include a link in the show notes as well so you can access their Find Health page if you would like it. That was a huge episode and we are only halfway through this series. I love that we're tackling meteor topics like, oh, there's so much that I want to start talking about this year. And I'm so glad that we have Dan to start diving into it with. So make sure, guys, that you hit subscribe and that if you enjoyed today's episode, you go and give us a review. It helps people to find the podcast even more. And we would love that. We will be back with a special episode next Friday where you will hear part two of our conversation with Dan Koch. We talk all things Sherwood, MySpace, deconstruction of faith, really great things that will probably make you go, I get that. Until then, I am Jessica Morris and I will see you next week. Ninety miles on the highway Every day moving so fast Taking all the wrong ways out Never saw you coming Stopping me in my tracks Keeping me from the long way down Doesn't matter just how many times I tried There could only be a single reason why So tell me say it's magic but i know that you did all that you're the reason there's no doubt doesn't matter just how many times i try there could only be a single reason why so tell me out of miracles just happen like that happen like that happen like that you can see the stars align but i know that it's more than time for listening to the Between You and Me podcast. Stay connected by visiting www.betweenyouandmepod.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more Christian news, reviews, and interviews, get plugged in to JesusWire.com.